0: This morning's scripture reading will come from the book of Isaiah. It's the book of Isaiah, and we'll be starting in chapter 38. Again, that's Isaiah 38, and we'll be starting in verse 1. Now in those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order. For you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add fifteen years to your life. I will deliver you and the city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend the city.
1: Well, good morning and grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so good to have you here with us. I know that we have some visitors here among us for Mother's Day, and we're thankful to have you here with us, and thankful to all of our mothers, want to wish you a a happy Mother's Day, and hope that it's a wonderful one, hope that uh, your family did something nice for you, or will do something nice for you, and if you haven't done anything yet, hopefully they're taking a hint now. But it is good to see you this morning, It, it would be nice, wouldn't it? It would be nice if prayer was as easy as it was for Hezekiah. You hear that you have a death sentence, you pray, and the Lord answers and says, I think I'm going to give you 15 more years. It would be nice if it was that easy, if it was that simple. Every time I ask God for something, He responds in the affirmative and I get it. You know, I kind of just put my little prayer coin into heaven and out pops my request. I mean, isn't that the way it's supposed to be? I read passages like Matthew 7 and verse 7 where Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Or John chapter 14 and verse 14. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And so, just from a cursory glance of Scripture, it seems as if that's the way that prayer is supposed to work. I ask, God answers, and I get what I want. But if that's the case, if it was the case that every time I asked for something, God gave it to me, or every time I kind of put my prayer coin into heaven, out popped the blessing, out popped the reward, wouldn't that make us God? And not God, God? Wouldn't that make God kind of beholden to us like some kind of genie in a lamp? We rub the lamp and he grants us our wishes. And if you have prayed long enough and if you've tried this prayer thing out, you realize that it certainly isn't like that. That sometimes we get the things that we ask for and sometimes we don't. And that can create a lot of confusion, a lot of questioning. I, I don't know, I, I don't have any statistics on this, but if I had to say what was the greatest percentage of questions that I get as a minister, I'd, it probably would have to be a pretty high percentage when it comes to prayer. And yet within scripture we see this example of, that pushes against this idea that if I pray and and God doesn't answer me, well, then he didn't hear my prayer, or he doesn't answer prayer. there's There's an example within Scripture that really pushes against that idea. And that, of course, is the example of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in Mark's account of Gethsemane in Mark chapter? ...14 ...14 and verse 36. From Mark's perspective, Jesus is very much, much more forceful in his language here. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then we turn over to Hebrews 5 and verse 7, and the Hebrews writer says... ...in the days of his flesh Jesus offered up prayers and supplications... With loud cries and tears of him who was able to save him from death. Notice he was able to save him from death. And then it goes on to say, and he was heard. Because of his reverence. Hebrews 5 and verse 7. Now there's a couple of things that I learned from those two passages about prayer. Number one, God was able to save but he didn't. Jesus himself says, you can do this. You can save me from this. The Hebrews writer says he was able to save him from death, and he was heard. But we know that he died. So God was able to save, but he didn't. So what that tells me is that an unanswered prayer, or some of us would say a prayer in the negative, a a, a prayer that's answered no, doesn't mean that God is incapable. It doesn't mean that he's incapable or powerless to save. The second thing I learned from these verses is that Jesus was heard but not delivered. The Hebrews writer wants us to know he was heard. God heard his prayer. And so what this tells me about prayer is that an unanswered prayer isn't necessarily due to my unrighteousness. Because Jesus was more righteous than anyone. Jesus was more perfect than anyone. And his, hair, his answer, his, his, his prayer was answered, and yes, it was answered in the negative. And it had nothing to do with his righteousness. And then a third thing I learned about prayer from these verses is that Jesus had faith, and yet he still had to suffer. And so my lack of answered prayer, or prayer answered in the negative, isn't due to my lack of conviction, necessarily. I'm not saying that that's always the case, but sometimes when you pray and you don't have a prayer answered, our immediate response, or maybe somebody else's immediate response to us, is to say, well, you didn't have enough faith. You didn't have enough trust. You didn't have a conviction. I'm telling you right now, this morning, there's nobody that had greater faith than Jesus Christ, and yet his prayer was answered in the negative. And so we need to be careful about jumping to these assumptions when it comes to these prayers that we feel aren't being answered in the way that we don't think that they would answer. But what's the answer then? Why is it, if God is capable, if I am righteous and if I am faith-filled, why is it that some of my prayers aren't fulfilled? At least in the way I think that they should be. Now, we can give a, a variety of answers to that. I, I, I've written on that before, why God doesn't answer every prayer. Now, we don't have time to get into all of that, but, but from Scripture's perspective, there is one answer that kind of answers some of that. And it's found in Jesus' teaching on how we should pray in Matthew chapter 6 on the Lord's Prayer. And the phrase that jesus uses is simply this i want you to pray in this way your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven your will be done later as we just read him Mark 14, whenever Jesus is in his most dire moment, he's giving his most dire request, he's pleading to God in his most difficult moment, he says, this is what I want, Father, I want you to deliver me from this moment, but not as I will, but as you will. This is the heart of the Christian teaching of prayer. That at the heart of our requests and at the heart of our conversations with God, we offer our prayer and our prayers are answered according to the will of God. Or as we're putting it this morning as we continue our series that we started last week, How to Talk to God, we talk to God with submissive longing. We talk to God with submissive longing. What exactly does that mean, though? Here's a good question. Why should God's will, and if you've never wondered this, uh, you know, I, 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 I have. Why should God's will be preeminent in my prayers when they're my prayers? When the whole reason that I'm coming to God is because I will something. I desire something. I long for something. I purpose something. Why should I consider God's will in this? And so I want us to continue our series. How do we talk to God with submissive longing? And I want us to read back through the Lord's Prayer together so we can get the context once again in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 8. Matthew 6, and start in verse 8. We'll see what Jesus means by this. Do not be like them, the pagans. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts and we also, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. What does it mean when Jesus says we are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, to have this submissive longing? But the first thing that it means is that if we're going to pray this, if we're going to pray in this way, if we're going to pray in the way that Jesus wants us to, then we have to have a trust in the Father's care. We have to have a determined trust in the Father's love. Let me tell you something. It is a fearful thing sometimes to pray, Your will be done. For being honest with ourselves. It is sometimes a very fearful thing to pray that. And especially it's difficult when we're praying about people that we love. And people that we care for. And when pain and death are involved when dreams and hopes are involved. And in those situations, we don't want God's will. Because we fear that God's will might be against our will. And we want our will and we want our way. Because we think that our will in our way is the best way. We're not concerned in those moments. And I'm not, I'm not uh, attacking you for I've been there as well. We're not concerned in those moments with God's kingdom coming. We're simply concerned with building our own kingdom in which our desires are met, in which we are free of anxiety, pain, or fear. And so to pray, God, I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done. To pray like that in moments where we are hurting or where people we love are hurting, it almost feels like we're asking for an invading force to come into our life and to do something that we don't want him to do. And I think that that fear is kind of deep within us. Because it really goes all the way back to the garden, right? Really, the the response of Adam and Eve to God's restrictions and his guidelines and his law was to say, God, I don't want your will. I want my own kingdom. I don't want this kingdom that you've made. I want my own way, and I want to do this how I want to do it. And so they reached out of bounds, and they tried to make their own uh, way and their own kingdom. We believe that we know better than God. And so because we think that we know better than God, we want to be like God, like Adam and Eve did. And we seek what we don't understand. And we assume that if we just had what we thought we needed, we would be okay. And I'm not speaking ideally here. I'm speaking of something that is deeply personal to all of us at some point in your walk of faith. But this is why we're talking about how fearful it can be to pray that. But this is why this section, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is why this section of the prayer is not the first section of the prayer. Because before Jesus says, pray like this, pray and ask for the will of God to be done, pray for His kingdom and not for your kingdom, before He says that, He begins the prayer by saying, Our Father. Our Father. As we talked about last week, our Abba, our Abba. Listen, before you are brave enough, and I think that's an appropriate word to use, before you are brave enough to pray for God's will, you have to believe enough in God's love. Before you are brave enough to pray for God's will, you have to believe enough that God loves you. Because if I don't believe that he loves me, I'm surely not going to pray. I want your will to be done. Because it seems like I'm praying again for some outside, invasive, aggressive force to come into my life and to do something that I don't really want him to do. Because it isn't some cosmic chess player and His will that I'm trusting in. But I'm trusting in my Father's will, who sometimes, if I'm being completely honest, I don't always understand. But I do know and I do trust that He loves me. And this is central to understanding the Christian perspective on prayer. Because prayer isn't simply an opportunity or a means to achieve everything that I desire. That is, never, that is never the angle of prayer within Scripture. It's not simply a means of me achieving everything I want. But prayer is a partnership between me and my Father to secure His reign and to secure my good through His reign by my request. And that is why He connects... In a minute, the request he's going to make with, but first he says, before he prays, give us this day our daily bread, he first prays, but I want your will to be done, I want your name to be hallowed, I want my Father to be magnified in my life. And so my pleas are ardent, my pleas are heartfelt, my cries are real, but they are always within the context of the greater picture, and that includes even at times my pain. And the only way that I can do this, the only way that I can pray, Lord, I want your will to be done, is if I have an absolute faith that God has a sovereign, intended, determined purpose for my good. Romans 8 and verse 28, he works all things, all things, all things for good to those who love him. And so I, I have to be convinced of that. I, I have to be, believe that, that even in the darkness, even in the misery, and even in these terrible moments, that God has a determined purpose for my good, that he will inevitably bring that about as I love him and as I trust in him. And it's only when I believe that, that I can say, your will, Father, and not mine. And this, of course, we witness. How do I know that God loves me? How do I know that He is determined to do me good? Because He gave us His Son. That's the answer. And that might not be satisfactory to you, but that is the answer of Scripture. If you look at Romans 8 and verse 32, Paul there says, If He did not deliver His Son, if He gave His Son over us, how will He not through Him give us all things? What's he saying there? He's saying if God gave you his own son, what is he not willing to do to save you and to secure your eternal good? But what we see within Jesus is a sobering reminder. Because it reminds us that God's good purpose and goodwill is not free of pain and struggle and loss in this present life. And sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking that suffering and, and pain has nothing to do with the Christian walk, even though Scripture says over and over and over and over and over again that it does. And even, that we sense we, even though we serve a crucified Savior, we all convince ourselves that we'll get through this life without suffering until life reminds us otherwise. And what that means is that sometimes God's no to our present cry is actually a yes to our greater calling to be conformed to his image and praying according to God's will if it is done daily is a constant reminder that we are not living for the present world that the real and lasting one is yet to come and that God still has work to do on us it's a reminder that all of my affections and all of my desires and all of my will is often focused on this life. But God's purpose is far greater than that. He's looking for the real life that is to come. Yet as we learn to trust in the Father's care, and that's the first step in this, if I'm going to pray my, your will be done and not mine, I really have to trust in his care. As we learn to trust in the Father's care and, and we submissively long for his will, what are we longing for? What are we longing for? As we pray to God. Well, number one, we long for his reign to be expanded. Jesus says, I want you to pray your kingdom come. And so he says, I want you to pray that the kingdom of God is expanded. Now, growing up in the church, I heard that you shouldn't pray the Lord's Prayer because to pray the Lord's Prayer, if you say, Lord, I want your kingdom to come, you're denying that the church has come. You're denying, and maybe some, some of you are nodding your heads. You've, you've heard that before. Now, I understand the reasoning behind that, I think. And that was, you didn't want to downplay the importance of the church. But if I'm being completely honest, I think it was, quite, it was, it was wrong-headed. In fact, it was quite wrong, I think. And for a couple of reasons. First, that type of thinking limits the use of the prayer. If Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, he says, I want you to pray like this. What he's essentially telling them, if what is being said is true, that you can't pray your kingdom come, then he's saying, okay, guys, you can only pray this for maybe two years. And then when the churches come, then you can't pray this anymore. That doesn't make much sense that he would include that in here. And second, it limits the entire context of the prayer. Because we don't treat anything else in the Sermon on the Mount like that. We don't say, well, Jesus is teaching this, but um, it's only good for a couple of years. right? It's It's only good for a short amount of time. You have to recognize that Matthew is writing this gospel Many years after Jesus actually taught this gospel, taught this. And yet he still includes it when he is using this to teach the disciples how to pray. And then, thirdly, the reason I have an issue with that thinking is that it limits the term kingdom to just the church. And that is simply not biblical. It's not biblical. For example, Psalm 145 and verse 13 says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The psalmist was praying that hundreds of years before the church came into existence. And he said the kingdom of God is an everlasting kingdom. What does he mean by that? In Scripture, equating the kingdom of God is equating it to the reign of God. And God's reign extends throughout all of creation, specifically within heaven. His reign is perfected, but within all of creation as well. Now, the church is a special place in which the reign of God is recognized. We are the kingdom of God in a special way because we have submitted to his reign and we have submitted to his rule, and we are living that out. I'm not denying that, that the church and the kingdom are one and the same in the sense that we are the kingdom in a special way, But scripture does not limit kingdom only to the church. God's reign and kingdom is universal. And it is specifically witnessed in the church. And so the kingdom of God is both, it is established, but it is still coming in the hearts and the lives of men. And to pray your kingdom come does not deny the reality of the church. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 22. There, Paul says to the brethren, In him you are also, now notice what he says here, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, wait a second, Paul. I thought that the church of Christ was built, if you will, metaphorical language he's using there. I thought it was established in Acts chapter 2 when Pentecost came. So, how can we still be, it still be being built? If it was already built. Because Paul understood that the church was in a state of growth. It was in a state of expansion. It was established, but it was still being established. It was still growing. It was still expanding throughout the world. And so to pray for the kingdom of God isn't to deny the reality and the importance of the church, but to affirm it. We want the kingdom of God to come now in the hearts and the minds of men in its fullness. And at the return of Christ, we want the kingdom to come. And it's perfectly biblical to pray that. And so when I pray for the will of God, and, 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 and when I pray for the will of God, my prayers need to be kingdom-focused. My prayers need to be kingdom-focused I should be praying, number one, Lord, expand your kingdom in my life. Allow your kingdom to come more fully in my life. Lord, a prayer like that might sound like this. Lord, help me to be more like Jesus. Grant me a greater love for you and for your word. Help me to see and to know your peace and your love. Lord, make me holy. Make me holy, God. So I want to expand the kingdom In my life, number two, I want to expand the kingdom in the church. I hope that you pray for this church. I hope I'm not the only one praying for this church. I hope that we're all praying for each other. And then we're praying things like, Lord, help us to be a church that really believes and lives out your reign. Help us to be a church that takes the gospel seriously, that upholds and defends the truth. Help us to be that type of people Help your kingdom to fully come in our hearts and our minds collectively as the people to truly believe that and to live that and to know that. And then thirdly, I want to expand the kingdom of God in my community. I want to pray, Lord, open doors for me to teach the gospel. Allow my path to cross with someone who is seeking and searching for you. Give me wisdom to know what to say. I, I need to have that courage and that conviction. That's the type of prayer that we're longing for. As we submissively long, we long for the kingdom, God's reign to be expanded in my life, in the church, and within the community. And I, that should be part of the main focus of our prayer as we talk to God. Number two, as, we, as we're submissively longing as we talk to God in prayer, we're longing for his purpose to be realized. Not only his reign to be exp- extended, but his purpose to be realized. Your will be done as we have talked about. We all have hopes and dreams. We all have plans. We all have purposes. We all have we all have visions of how we think life should have turned out. How it should be. But in your plans and in your dreams, where is the purpose of God? In your plans and in your dreams, are you pursuing the American dream or the Almighty's dream? Which one are you pursuing more? How you pray may reveal the answer to that question. A prayer of submissive longing hopes that the purpose of God will be witnessed within us. What does that look like? And here's a hard one, guys. Sometimes this means that if I'm, longing, if I'm really submissively longing for God's purpose to be realized, sometimes this means that I pray for God's defeat of me. Sometimes this means that I pray that God will defeat my desires. And so a prayer like that looks like this. Lord, I really want this. And from my perspective, it seems like the right thing. And I I really need this, God. But Father, if this is going to keep me from loving you more, if this is going to prevent me from being more conformed to your image, if this is going to make my family be less focused on you, if this is going to mess up my priorities, if this is going to tempt me to sin, Lord, I can't see the future, I can't see my path, but you can. And if it's going to do any of that, I don't want it. Your will be done. Not mine. So to submissively long for God in prayer means that sometimes I pray for his defeat of my desires as I long for his purpose to be fulfilled in my life. And then number three, what it means to submissively long in prayer is that we long for his world to be perfected. I want your kingdom to come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We get so used to the brokenness of the world, don't we? We, And not only do we get used to it, we get comfortable with it, and we like it. Let's just be honest. And this is why over and over and over again the new testament has to say don't you love the world first john 2 and verse 15 It's passing away don't, don't you now he's not saying don't love creation and don't delight in the good things that god has given us in the world but he's saying don't be comfortable with the status quo of this fallen state of this creation because this is not the one that's going to remain and yet we get comfortable with that and scripture warns us against that having too much affection For this fallen world. And in order to safeguard against such affections for this fallen state. A prayer of submissive longing to God. Hungers. Hungers. For God's holiness. To be magnified in the world. And a prayer like that says something like this. Lord grant me a greater hatred for evil within myself first and within my world around me. Grant me the courage and the conviction to speak out against sin when I see it. Help me to be a light in the darkness, to be conformed fully to the image of Christ even in the midst of my suffering. Now that's a difficult prayer because it implies that there's going to be resistance. Because if you're trying to perfect god bring god's perfect holiness into a world of darkness the darkness hates the light but it is a reminder once again that prayer is not essentially about my comfort but so that i may be more aligned to god's greater purposes within the world my prayers are God's tools to magnify His greatness within the world around me. And so as I talk to God, I want to submissively long for this, for His world to be perfected in some way through me. And we know that it won't be fully perfected because when Jesus returns, there will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But God never calls for us to forsake this present world and just watch it burn. He's in the business of salvation, and he calls for us to pray for that as well. He's in the business of transformation. and Brethren, let me tell you, let's just be honest. If we're not praying about evangelism, if we're not praying for the salvation of our neighbor, if we're not praying for the transformation of our communities, we are not going to do it. We're not going to participate in it because our minds aren't on it. And there's so many other distractions in this fallen world, right? So I pray and I long for God's reign to be expanded, for his purpose to be realized, and for his world to be perfected. When you were younger, some of you probably learned what I refer to as the children's prayer. And that was something like this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Were any of you taught that when you were younger? Let's be honest, that's a pretty terrifying prayer for a kids. Right? <laughs> if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. It might be a little bit scary, but let me tell you something. That prayer is deeply theological. That prayer is deeply biblical. Because in our sleep, there is a submissive resignation to God's care and purpose for us. And so in that prayer, we're trying to say that in our most vulnerable moment, we're going to trust in you, God. In our moment when we are most susceptible to harm and to pain, we're going to trust in you. There's a lot of questions about prayer for me, that I don't know if they'll ever be answered, if I'm being completely honest with you. And there's a lot of questions that you have about prayer that you're coming to me and you're asking me. And, and if you've asked me a question about prayer, sometimes we have a good conversation about it. And sometimes I'll just say, I'll be honest with you, I don't know. So there's some things that we might not ever have the answer to. But I do know this. This is the confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 1 John 5 and verse 14. This morning I want to encourage you to submit your life to a king and to a father who loves you. And whose purpose and whose will. Is far greater than your own. And you might not always understand that will. But you can never deny his love. And so I call for you this morning. To submit to him. And his reign. And his kingdom and his purpose. To love him with all of your heart. As he has loved you. To trust him to turn your life over to him, repent of your sins, to confess him as Lord, and to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. If we can help you in that way, if there's any other requests that you have, why don't you come together, we stand and as we sing.
2: God, we pray. Our most righteous and loving Heavenly Father, we humbly bow before Thee, giving thanks for this opportunity we've had this day to worship Thee in spirit and truth. So thankful, Father, for this lesson today, for Jacob, for bringing that lesson to us to remind us of prayer. We're so thankful that we can always lift up our needs and make our supplications known to Thee. Father, <coughs> we're Thankful for the time we've had to gather together for Damon leading us in these songs. We're so glad we had the opportunity to lift up our voices to thee and to gather around this table. We pray, Father, that as we go through the day that we're careful and that we're safe. And at this time, Father, we're so thankful and want to lift up our mothers, those that have gone on before us, those that have been the backbone of our homes, we pray for those mothers that we have here today we pray that they always continue that steadfast love for the family for the unending work that they do in our homes we pray father at this time that we do lift up the church that we pray for the church to expand to grow we pray that we do all those things to make that happen so thankful we once again for that message From your servant Jacob, we pray now, Father, as we leave, that we focus on our day and plan to return at the next appointed time. In Jesus' name we pray.